thump, thump, thump. Your heart, you never think about that endless rhythm unless it skips a beat. The human heart is said to be the hardest working muscle in the body. But how did that extraordinary muscle evolve? The average adult heart beats 72 times a minute, 100,000 times a day, 3,600,000 times a year. That's over two and a half billion times cradle to grave during a 70-year lifespan. Your thumping cardiac muscle is an elegant example of dynamic strength combined with endurance. My guest this time on Talking Apes is Dr. Rob Shave professor of sports and exercise physiology and a co-founder of the International Primate Heart Project. For many of his 100,000 beats each day, Rob's heart is pulsing him towards a clearer understanding of itself and the evolution of our hearts. He approaches the challenge by exploring the hearts of our closest cousins, chimps and gorillas. Those apes like us have hearts that murmur with the mystery of our earliest ancestral heart. And by comparing those hearts to hunter-gatherers, rainforest people, traditional agriculturalists, and endurance athletes. Rob is working to examine the acute and chronic effects of exercise and environmental stress upon the heart. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that, well, especially today, gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Hi, Rob, and welcome to Talking Apes. It's been uh, a few years and way too long. It's great, great to see you, Jerry. Uh, I wish we were, wish we were ever in uh, Africa somewhere, maybe Zam. Zambia, maybe having maybe having a short little glass of whiskey whilst we whilst we have this chat. That's what I'd really like to be doing. That I oh, I, I can't tell you how I long for that. Well, yeah, we actually met a couple of years ago. I think three or four years ago now, and you were looking at chimp hearts, and I had been I had heard about you, and I was trying to catch up with you somewhere in the world, and lo and behold. I walk into uh, Chimfungi Sanctuary in Zambia, and guess who's showing up as well in that sanctuary? So, so just to get everybody on board, what what the heck were you doing there? Um, well, we've been going to Africa for I don't know, it's probably about eight years now. Looking, uh, uh, working with with colleagues over there, looking at looking at chimp hearts, gorilla hearts, and a few bonobos here and there. Um, just trying to we be we being so myself and uh, colleague I was going to say colleagues friends um, that I've been working with for a number of years so um, Dr Amy Drain who w- was a PhD student of mine at the time but she and I've been going there quite, quite frequently um, Dr Glenn Howitson who's been a, a research colleague of mine for a number of years and then various students along the way have come along to help out or run specific studies so um, the the, the the idea behind the project really is to better understand um, heart disease in our closest evolutionary cousins, and also to get some insight into into the human heart. How how has the human heart evolved? Um, so yeah, that's that's where that's what we were trying to do. But but I remember vividly meeting you for the first time because I just jumped off the back of a a, a crazy Land Rover um, journey, 
and you ran up, grabbed hold of a bag and thrust a beer into my hand. So you, you obviously wanted something. <laughs> um, no, that's how I meet everyone is just uh, <laughs> grab, grab their bags and thrust a beer in their hands. So the project that, that all your colleagues you were, you were just outlining is called the International Primate Heart Project. And that's the topic for today is to talk about primate hearts. And so maybe you could start us off by just giving us a little anatomical description of what our heart is. Because, I, I mean, obviously, everyone knows they have a heart and most creatures have a heart. But I, I just... I'm not sure that we all really understand what that thing is thumping in our chest. Sure. So uh, I, the heart's fascinated me for years. I mean, I, I, I used to work with athletes. And so uh, um, understanding their, their cardiovascular fitness in, in relation to their, their athletic prowess was something that I was fascinated by. And that then led me down the road of uh, um, my, my PhD, where we used cardiac ultrasound to look at the hearts. And I, I vividly remember looking at a heart for the first time. So you put the ultrasound probe on a chest and there you see this beautiful, um, beautiful organ that just works. I mean, it works without us thinking. It's pumping continuously, you know, four chambers, two atria at the top of the heart, two ventricles at the bottom, sending blood um, to the lungs where the, the, the blood picks up the oxygen, comes back to the heart, and then the left side of the heart pumps that blood um, around the body to to get the oxygen to the working tissues um, also helps with thermoregulation um, but it's just an amazing organ that never stops um, and uh, it's just it's a it's a phenomenal phenomenal piece of machinery if you like and uh, um, it, it's constantly working at rest but it's got this capacity to rapidly respond should should it need to so you know in in the olden days where we were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger it could respond really quickly. It could increase cardiac output, you know, the amount of blood pumped out of the heart each each beat, so the stroke volume, or the cardiac output, how much blood over a whole minute, goes up dramatically to, to meet the demands of uh, exercise. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal thing. So is is that demand, is that the same demand that, uh, you know, a chimpanzee or a gorilla or I guess any other creature on the planet, but it, since we're talking about about great apes in particular, is that the same demand, or does their heart is does their heart look like our heart? Mm -hmm. I mean, if I if I pull a chimpanzee heart out or an orangutan heart out of their chest and pull our heart out of my chest, would they all look the same? So, I mean, that that's the fundamental question we're tr we're trying to answer, um, and. When, when you first look at a chimpanzee heart or a gorilla heart, it, it's broadly the same. So, yes, it's got two atria. It's got two ventricles. Um, it, it pumps at approximately, you know, 65 to 75 beats per minute. Um, but when you start looking at it very, very closely, there are, there are some quite marked differences. And that, that's part of the work we've been doing is, is really trying to um, characterize exactly what the heart looks like. So as I mentioned earlier, we, we use um, cardiac ultrasound. So it's a system very similar to that that's used to uh, scan pregnant women. Um, so by using that machine, we can we can look at the heart. We can look at how big the chambers are. So um, how much blood is in the in the ventricle um, as it relaxes and then as it um, contracts. 
we can look at how thick the walls are. So depending on the demands that the, the heart has to meet, the, the heart will remodel to, to respond to that. So, um, you know, if, if you need a lot of cardiac output because you're an endurance athlete, you've got to have big chambers. Um, but if you if, say, you have hypertension, so if you've got um, high blood pressure and the heart is working against that high blood pressure, the walls will respond. And so you'll get thicker walls. So it's an incredible, uh, incredible organ that, that is really, really responsive to either physiologic demands or pathologic demands. So if uh, if you have disease or, um, you know, something like high blood pressure, the heart responds to maintain its ability to uh, meet the demands in the face of the uh, the challenges associated with disease. Hmm. I, I guess I, I mean, I, I've known it's a muscle, um, but I never thought of, I, I guess I hadn't made that conversion in my brain between thinking about, you know, if you increase the under under exercise and stress and things, you can increase the size of the muscles in your legs or your arms or wherever. But I, I, I guess I hadn't put those two together and think, well, you could do the same thing with your heart. So, because most endurance, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some genetic things going on there, but most endurance athletes or most, you know, let's say you're a sprinter like Usain Bolt or somebody on the planet, I would assume your heart, you're born with a heart that's similar. Well, it's broadly similar. Um, but of course, with, uh, with athletes, there's a, there's a large genetic component there. And uh, if, if you are, let's say, just say genetically talented, you, you have the ability to adapt and respond probably better than some other individuals. Um, and you, you're absolutely right. The heart is a muscle and it responds and it adapts. Um, and so, if you think of an endurance athlete, an endurance athlete um, will, will have an extremely high VO2 max. I don't know whether you've heard that term, but VO2 max is your, your overall aerobic capacity. And that is largely determined by your, your heart's ability to generate a large cardiac output. So those endurance athletes, yeah, those, those cyclists, those marathon runners, they have the ability to generate a large cardiac output. So their, their volume, the volume of blood that's in their heart um, and then ejected from their heart each beat is much larger than someone else's. Um, and that's related to adaptations in the heart itself. So the chamber gets bigger, um, but also our, our circulating blood volume. So the amount of blood going around our body in endurance aspects, that might be 15 to 20 percent larger. So they just have this much this expanded capacity to uh, um, increase cardiac output to meet those demands. Um, now, some of that is genetic, but we're all trainable and we can all improve. Um, so it's definitely worth uh, doing the physical activity that that, that everyone uh, is recommended to. Well, is it the reverse of that then? If if an endurance athlete increases that, does does somebody who isn't an endur goes? I guess the opposite way, the, the ultimate opposite way would be just sitting there all day long and not moving. But is Usain Bolt's heart, he's a sprinter. It's 100 meters yeah. and it's over with. 200 meters, it's over with. Is his heart smaller? Okay, so now, now you, you get into the point of a, a really big question in exercise physiology, you know, is do hearts respond in different ways to different types of exercise training? 
And uh, the, the way in which this has historically been looked at is very much uh, in a sort of dichotomous approach where you have your marathon runners on one end and then you have your, your resistance exercise, so your weightlifters and your powerlifters on the other. So very, very different, what we call a phenotype, very different body shapes um, uh, that have been um, adapted to the specific types of physical activity that they do. And in terms of their hearts, we, there's huge amounts of data showing that the endurance athletes have a, um, a well-adapted um, left ventricle. So their left ventricles get much larger to, to manage that cardiac output that I mentioned earlier on. Whereas the resistance type athletes, they don't need to generate that, that high cardiac output. What they have to do is they have to deal with a sort of pressure overload. So as, as they lift high, um, large weights, um, the heart is sometimes exposed to a um, large pressure overload. And so the heart's got to work harder. And to accommodate that, the walls get thicker. So you get a much, much more muscular heart. Um, and so the, the way in which it's thought about is you get a pressure overloaded heart, which is remodeled with thick walls. And that's in your um, your resistance athletes, and you get a volume overloaded or a volume adapted heart in your endurance athletes, and that's much more of a cavity increase in size. So that there's quite a, a differential response to the training training piece. Bags of data to support the uh, the endurance side, less so on the resistance side, and uh, um, that's certainly an area of work that, that we're still interested in, and uh, and others are as well. Okay, so now that brings up a question in my brain about thinking about this in terms of apes, and we're going to talk about the work that you're doing on non-human apes, bonobos, gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans. But my first thought is, well, wait a second, these are animals that are in in the wild. They're, I mean, they have their their sort of quiet times, but they're also very active. Sometimes very in the case of chimps they're explosive yeah. <laughs> um but then you on the other side of that coin you have great apes in captivity uh -huh. and which are not doing what they like us they're not doing what they should be doing they're not yeah. moving you know yeah. uh, I, I assume you're going to tell me that you know we are sitting around all day long doing what you and i are doing right now just talking to one another and not you know getting out and and doing as yeah. much moving moving around so which is probably not traditional for our hearts completely um and that's only made worse at the moment uh you know covid's forced us into this place even more so so you know the last 18 <laughs> exactly. months we've been sat looking at screens talking through zoom but you, you're absolutely right and um the, the concept you're, you're touching on there is is something that's termed evolutionary mismatch so where whereby um we, we have not evolved to sit down all day long. We, we've evolved to be highly physically active. And that, that's related to hunter-gathering paths and then moving from hunter-gathering paths to um, subsistence farming. Um, you know, th those, those components of our evolutionary history mandated, you know, lots and lots of physical activity. Um, and we, we just simply aren't doing that anymore in the uh, in the post-industrial societies. I mean, there, there are still some pre-industrial societies that are doing that type of physical activity. And I'm sure we'll come on to that a little bit later. But uh, um, yeah, at this moment in time, 
people living in North America, Europe, we're not doing what we what we what we're meant to do. Um, and even those taking part in you know the forty five minutes of um, physical activity that we're supposed to be doing that that's again not not really covering what what we or it's not replacing what we should be doing. Um, so uh, um, the the mismatches that are our whole bodies and in this case specifically our cardiovascular system have been selected to support a very very specific type of way of life um and we 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 don't we don't do that anymore so um as hunter gatherers you know we were going out and we were walking for several hours a day um trying to hunt down animals as subsistence farmers we we were out in the fields planting crops um and harvesting and preparing food so many many hours of low-level physical activity and we're just not doing that um and so that has some significant repercussions so um i i'm interested in cardiovascular health and cardiovascular disease but th this is the same for many of the uh, diseases that are increasing in prevalence uh, across society at the moment um so uh, yeah hmm. so it is i mean are there example are are there any examples if i if i can kind of back up a minute to something you said earlier i mean you're 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 sort of looking at the evolution of this organ yeah. the, or this muscle the heart um are there any examples out there of people who you can look at you could look at their hearts and say okay that's probably pretty close to what our heart would have looked look should have looked like um so that so that you can create some kind of baseline vision of our hearts so that you know like look at our hearts now and go okay they're they're 75 percent so far off base that it yeah. you know we've got a long ways to get back to yeah. get home so, so that's exactly what we what we've been doing and um so mm -hmm. that there's a number of populations around the world who, who still live a uh, more traditional lifestyle. Um, and the, the one that we've worked with, uh, um, with colleagues um, out of uh, Boston, so Dan Lieberman and Aaron Baggage, um, who um, one's a cardiologist and one's an evolutionary biologist. Um, the three of us went, went down to Mexico to work with the Tarahumara and uh, um, a good portion of Tarahumara are still living a very subsistence uh, farming type lifestyle. Um, so we spent some time down there and we, we looked at their hearts and we looked at their physical activity. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of four or five times more physically active than, than, than even kind of the, the people meeting the guidelines in, in the, that we currently have. Um, and so the, the, the demands that the heart has to meet are markedly different. Um, and uh, the other piece that I haven't mentioned that, that's, that's relevant here as well, it's not just the physical activity, it's the thermoregulation. So as we exercise, we get hot and we have to, we have to um, dissipate that heat. And part of that is, you know, it, sending blood to the skin to, to lose heat through sweating. Um, and if you think again about our evolutionary history, we will have spent significant amount of time physically active in hot environments. So not only are we now not moving, many of us now live in thermoneutral environments. So even though I'm living up in Canada and through the winter it's it's very cold and in the summer it's very hot, 
I'm inside and I've got air conditioning. And so we've got just this neutral balance. So the, the whole system isn't getting the stimulation that was required or maybe not required, but the stimulation that our, our evolutionary history meant that we were adapted for. And that's gone. Um, and so uh, coming back to your question, though, there are still some populations who are living that traditional lifestyle. And so we are able to get that almost that blueprint of what a heart in the human has been selected for and therefore what it should look like. Hmm. I had never thought about the thermal side of it. Uh, so when people are, are saying, you know, we need to get our heart rate up for a half an hour, three times a week, they should be saying, we also need to be sweating three times a week as well. Absolutely. But if yeah. you do the, if you huh. do the former, the, the latter will probably count. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, that, yeah, that's really interesting. It, so, so how does this relate to your work with grade A part, non-human grade A parts? How how does this connect? Okay, so I I mentioned Dan Dan Liebman. So um, Dan mm -hmm. Dan wrote a really interesting paper. I think it's back in 2011, where he he's talking about the human as um, being born to run. And uh, he, he outlines the, the, the hypothesis that, that we've been selected to be um, an endurance type animal um, to help um, hunt and gather. Now, I, I was reading I was rereading a book that referenced that paper while I was sat on holiday. And all of a sudden I was like, OK, well, if that's the case, then our cardiovascular system must have been selected as well to uh, support that. Um, and uh, I, I got into, I didn't know Dan at the time, but I, I got in touch with him and I kind of floated this idea. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. That, that makes complete sense. But of course, the cardiovascular system doesn't sit in the fossil record. So uh, most of Dan's work is, is looking at the fossil record. And so, you know, backwards and forwards, and we, we settled on the idea that, you know, we, 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 need, to, we need to scan our, our evolutionary cousins. We need to look at the apes. Um, to get some idea of where um, our evolutionary journey as um, an endurance type animal animal may have come from, and so off the back of that, I I sent an email to uh, a, a zoological collection in the UK, and uh, I, I sent it off not really expecting to to get much of a, a response because I I was asking quite a big question. I was asking whether we could come and assess their animals and um bizarrely a couple of things just coincided and, and two days later i get an invitation to go and scan a gorilla um so from an initial idea um and an email we we were working with uh, um one of the zoological collections in in the uk and it, it's all spun from there um so uh, um by by looking at the apes we 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 then have an understanding of okay our evolutionary past start well, doesn't start at that point, but that's our kind of last. It's a a model of our last common ancestor. I mean, that's not perfect by any means, but um, we've uh, we we the human lineage split off about six million years ago, uh, and then somewhere between that split and where we are now, you know, we move from um, you know spending a lot of time in the trees to walking upright to doing far more physical activity than the than that the apes do 
Um, so yeah, I, I've rambled a bit there. So uh, we've gone off track. No, no, but that yeah, no, yeah, no. There actually, it's it's spawned a couple of other questions, um, which is 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 exactly what your work when we first met in Zambia did. It just uh, the questions started swimming in my head, and um, it's why I was so excited to have you back on or have you on um, for Talking Apes. So a couple of questions that you touched on there. One is how, how different are our hearts? Like it just if, like on a, on a, again, if, if I pull my heart out, I pull a gorilla's heart, an orangutan heart, lay them out on a table, all of the ape hearts, do they, would you know which one belonged to which? Okay. So, so let's start with that. So, Brief anecdote, right at the start, we took some images and I sent them to a cardiologist, a human cardiologist. And I was a little bit naughty in that I didn't tell him it was a chimp heart. So I just, just sent him a, an echo and he came back. He said, oh, what's going on there? I mean, he, he just assumed that it was a human heart. So, so there is nothing when you first look at it that makes you think it's different. However, what we've now done, you know, we've, we've assessed nearly 450 chimps now. So we've got a really pretty good handle of what a, what a chimpanzee heart looks like. And, and when we do all of those measures, the, the fundamental differences are, are in sort of two or three places. One of them is that the chimps, that the walls, so the heart muscle itself, are a little bit thicker. So... In, in the human world, that would suggest that the heart is adapted for pressure. So it, they've got relatively thick walls. The cavity inside the ventricle is a little bit smaller. And so it doesn't actually eject as much blood. So the overall cardiac output is a little bit lower. Now, that, may, that suggests that perhaps the overall metabolic demand that uh, the heart is feeding is probably a little bit less in the chimps. And that, that's probably related to um, our large brains and also our, the physical activity that we typically do. So um, two big structural differences, thick walls in the chimp heart, less, um, less thick walls in the human heart and a bigger, bigger ventricle in the human heart. But the other piece that's really interesting to me, and I've spent a number of years looking at an area of uh, cardiac physiology, which is called cardiac mechanics, which is how the the, the underlying function of the heart supports both filling and emptying. And probably the, the most remarkable difference is, is the way in which the heart actually um, relaxes. So during uh, the relaxation phase, which is called uh, the diastolic period. So the, during, during diastole in the human heart, the, the ventricle actually untwists so that the, the underlying structure of the human heart allows the heart to twist during the ejection phase and then untwist very rapidly during the um, relaxation phase, and that untwisting. So, so like like screwing a light yeah, bulb in absolutely. almost, or, or very much like um, twisting out a towel. So, if you had a towel that's wet, oh, okay. so if you twist out okay. a towel, you you squeeze out the water. So, as you twist it, you squeeze it out, but then it springs back. And that spring backs actually creates some suction. And in the human heart, we, we've, we've got this underlying structure that allows that. So 
we get very, very rapid filling early in the diastolic period. Now, remarkably, in, in the chimps, we don't have that at all. There, there, is, there is no rotation at the, what's, what's called the apex of the heart. So they don't twist at all. Um, and our, our thinking here is that that, that twisting action is a, um, an adaptation in the human heart that enables the heart to generate those large cardiac outputs during periods where the heart rate is high. So when the heart rate is high, you have less time for the heart to fill. And so to compensate for that, we're suggesting that you've got this very rapid untwisting mechanism that helps the heart fill during those higher heart rates and then therefore generate the higher cardiac outputs. So it's, it's quite a remarkable difference in the, in the function. And one of the things that that's related to in the chimp hearts, we, we have what's, what's called trabeculations. So it, it's a long word, which basically means there's, there's these large folds in the, uh, in the muscle. And because of those folds, we think that the, the ventral isn't able to do this rotation, isn't able to rotate and untwist. Um, whereas in the human heart, the derived human heart, there's very few of these trabeculations. And so that was one of the key findings of the um, a research study we published a couple of years ago. Hmm. Is it is it only the chimp heart? Do we see that in the gorilla heart, the orangutan heart? Great, so heart. Uh, great question. Really, really good question. And whilst we've got a lot of data on the chimps, we do have some data on uh, orangs and bonobos and gorillas. And from what we've seen so far, they also have these, these trabeculations. They also have these folds. Um, and so if you think about the, the great apes, and we are one of those great apes, a, a fundamental difference in the human heart is this lack of trabeculation, this lack of folding of the ventricle, um, and our ability to untwist and create these large end diastolic volumes, which help generate the large cardiac output. So it's it's peculiar if you like to the human heart whereas it appears that it's uh, um those folds are are the, the the kind of um initial substrate in in all of the other apes hmm. is is that true this uh, kind of jump jump over here a second but as you were describing that i was wondering what about an uh it's it's not an ape it's a but a primate, uh, baboons, baboons tend to be, um, from my observations, they, they tend to be a bit more um, often active in large groups because there's there seems to be this constant. If we look at a group of baboons, your your general observation is they seem to be uh, even more like us in the sense that there's constant interactions, there's constant reactions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you looked at baboon hearts? We haven't at all. I mean, it, it, it's something that I would like to do. And um, yeah, I, I think I think some of the things we've seen are probably related to physical activity, but but also that thermoregulation. And from a primate perspective, we're also peculiar there in that we've lost all our fur, and and so our ability to to lose heat is is really driven through. Uh, um, peripheral vasodilation, so our ability to send blood to the skin and then sweat, whereas all of the other primates don't have that mechanism. So I, coming back to what I said earlier on, I think it's that combination of physical activity and thermoregulation that are both supported through the cardiovascular system 
and therefore wholly dependent on on the uh, the activity of the uh, of the of the heart, the, the major pump. Have you have you had a chance to look at uh, any kind of hearts on on tropical people who, um, and I'm going to throw out a couple of, of words here: the the Dayak in Borneo and the Aturi in the Congo Basin. They're both people who live. Uh, you can actually find some groups that are living not completely traditional, but very close to traditional kind of hunter gatherer existences yeah. in a equatorial hot tropical condition yeah. we, we have i'm just wondering about their hearts compared to let's say a no. chimp that would live in the, or uh, yeah. absolutely we, we haven't been able to do that that as of yet i mean there's there's a population called the hadza uh, which i'm sure you, you've probably come across they would be fabulous to to look at they, they probably are the the closest uh, um population still taking part in uh hunter gathering life hunter gatherer lifestyle um but uh yeah, I mean, changing tack again slightly. Um, one of the fascinating things about the hunter-gatherer um, individuals and also the Tarahumara, one of the things we, we showed and has been shown in some other um, subsistence farming and hunter-gathering populations is that those individuals do not see the same age-related increase in blood pressure that we see in post-industrial societies. Yeah. Really? So, why is that? Well, <laughs> or is, or do you know? Well, I mean, it's probably a combination of things. It's it's probably a combination of physical activity and diet um, that that probably come come to bear on this. Um, but uh, it, it's one of the questions we're we're very keen to answer, and we've got a project planned for the next year or two once COVID's calmed down. So we'll go down and really try and look at those mechanisms. So, so just so I'm I'm clear, we, as you look at you know let's say you and me in this culture and in society and our and I, I assume you know our diets also play a big part in in this. Um, it, we typically go our heart our heart disease levels our heart pressure levels yeah. all those things kind of go up as we get yeah. older right and and what you're saying is with like the tarahumar the tarahumar they they exactly. don't. Exactly. So they 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 just flatline so, to death. So flatline. So we've got we've what? got data on about one hundred and twenty um, Tarahumara men from age about fourteen to ninety two, and they just don't. There doesn't appear to be any rise, age related rise in blood pressure. It's been shown in a few studies, um, but if you if you go to the large data sets from uh, Western populations, you know. The, big famous N. Haynes data set, the, the blood pressure in, in Western populations starts to rise above the age of uh, 35, 40, and, and it continues to rise. So, so you know, it, it almost, if you, if you were only to look at those data, you would suggest that blood pressure is, the rise in blood pressure is a natural aging phenomenon. But if you go back and you look at a population that is living the lifestyle that, that we've been selected for, that that rise in blood pressure just simply doesn't happen. Is that the same for chimps, bonobos, orangutans? Do we know? We don't know that yet. Now, the question I often get asked is, what is the resting blood pressure on a chimpanzee? 
And I'd love to be able to give a really solid answer on that. But all of our data are collected whilst the animals uh, uh, are anaesthetized. Now, we work with sanctuaries. So it's something I want to make sure people are aware of is, is that we, we're working with sanctuaries who are caring for these animals. They're, we work with them during regular health checks. So th these animals aren't anaesthetized for the, for the work. So it's important that I, I state that. Okay. Yeah, that was a question I was going to ask you because we were talking about, I mean, it, it makes sense if you're talking about a gorilla in a zoo, but, you know, we were talking about the, the apes and I'm just wondering, how do you get, how do you measure the heart rate of a wild chimpanzee, you know, swinging through the forests of Uganda? Um, yeah. And, you, and I assume you're not doing we, that, we, right? We're not doing that. I mean, it, it would be okay. possible, but it's completely unethical to do it. So, um, all of our data are from health checks. We we do we have some relationships though with some zoological collections where they're worried about the hearts of their of the animals in their care, um, and we've been able to collect some data from those animals, which gives us some sense of heart rate. But we we can't we can't get blood pressure. So all of the blood pressure data we have from the chimps are from um, anaesthetized animals. So that and the, of course the the anesthetic agents have an impact on the measures we take. And so all we can do is, is carefully monitor um, those, uh, those data during our assessments. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I'll just jump in for a second with, with my observations and especially my filming uh, of you at work is that there were, there were these health checks going on and you guys were always the last ones to get to, to jump in. They were, you know, there were obviously there were key things that the vets in these sanctuaries um, and and the sanctuaries were the animals that they were working on. For those of you listening, these were rescued um, from the bushmeat trade, from the illegal pet trade. Um, so they weren't captured for the purpose of, of being in a sanctuary. They were they were actually all of them orphans who had or were living there or grown up there in an a small case, a small number of cases, they were uh, what we call oops babies. They were born maybe in the sanctuary um, because the the uh, birth control failed in some way. But um, yeah, the the vets were at work doing their general health checks, and then when they when they uh, finished, you guys got to jump in with your equipment, which is pretty elaborate. I have to to say, you had, you had seemed to have cables and wires and stuff going in every direction possible. It was you guys were like a NASCAR team when you jumped in and getting the wheels off and filling it up with gas and all of that. I, I was I, I was blown away by how fast you could do what you were doing and collect all we, this data. We've got pretty slick at it. I mean, at, at first it was, uh, you know, it, it was a bit bizarre experience for myself and my colleagues because w we work with humans generally. And so uh, to, to take the equipment that we typically use in the, in the human setting and uh, then all of a sudden be dropped in the wilds of Africa in a, at a sanctuary, you know, working on the floor, um, yeah, it, it's a, it was a bit a bit challenging, but we, we got to the point where we can collect most of our data within ten or fifteen minutes, working around and with the the veterinary teams. But something I think that's worth kind of um, pointing out, and th this comes back to what I said earlier on about the invitation to go and scan a gorilla, that first ever uh, opportunity. Um, it, it was a little bit of serendipity, really, from a research perspective, because I had this initial question that I was interested in. But at, at the time when I reached out to that zoo in the UK, 
there's concerns over cardiac health in captive apes. And I, did, I was unaware of that at the time. But there, there was a number of animals who, who had died and, and the vet teams were trying to work out what was causing these deaths. And they, one of their theories, their working theories, was that they, they had some kind of heart disease. Um, and so my question to them was initially was, well, what's normal? What, what does the normal heart of a chimp or a gorilla look like? And they couldn't really give me any, any data. And um, I, I'm used to, you know, huge human data sets where, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Jerry, that if I put an ultrasound probe on your chest, I've, I've got a good idea of what your heart's going to look like because of all the data that we have. Those data just weren't available in these apes. And so a significant portion of the work that we've been doing, and especially that of uh, Amy Drain, a PhD student, has been to characterize the normal structure and function of the chimpanzee heart. So she's been able to make all of these measures and, and now has created papers where we've got the normal range. So now the vet teams looking after these animals can actually refer back to, OK, is this normal for a chimp or not? And they now, they now can tell that. And so um, that, that's been a really important piece of our work and something that we're really, really proud of is, is providing that information back to the vet teams who are, who are working with these animals. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I know that uh, one of the biggest problems with captive and, uh, you know, zoo type settings, especially with, it seems more so with gorillas and orangutans than others is heart disease, um, because they just aren't active and they're, they are at, or as active as they should be in the wild and, um, and their diets are different. So, so um, Jerry, can I, can I ask ahead. you a question? Yeah. What do you mean by heart disease? That's an yeah. Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? The, the, um, the reason I ask, and I'm not being flippant, is that no, when, no, when no. I, when I first came into this into this area, that's what the vets were telling me. It's like, oh, the, these animals are dying of heart disease, and I just say, what do you mean by heart disease? Because if, if you go to the human model, and I'll call it that, or you go to the human ape, we, we suffer from many different types of heart disease. So we might have hypertensive heart disease where our cardiovascular system is dealing with high blood pressures. But we might have atherosclerotic heart disease, which is related to our poor diets where you get vascular disease. And so the blood supply is being um, being you know turned off a little bit and so and then and then you've got a whole load of congenital cardiac diseases and disorders that that are inherited and so the vets were saying to me chimps are dying of heart disease and i'm like okay i don't really know what that means because it could be so many different types of pathology and so um when when we talk, typically talk about heart disease in humans, people, I think, normally think about atherosclerotic disease. But the fascinating thing and probably the most most interesting thing about, about the chimps is they do not get atherosclerosis. So even though the captive animals are sat around not doing very much physical activity, in some cases um, they've got they've had poor diets. And um, unfortunately, in research um, situations, they've had poor diets or they've been even fed very poor diets. So 
Um, some populations have been fed diets to give them very, very high cholesterol. Even in that situation where they're not doing any physical activity, they have high cholesterol, poor diets, um, they don't get atherosclerosis. So our ne nearest evolutionary cousin does not get the primary cardiac disease that humans get. But they do get something else, um, which in, in the zoo populations, and this is certainly a lot of the work from Haley Murphy's group has been looking at this, it, it, and the the captive apes seem to get this this fibrosis so the the heart muscle itself is becoming stiff and it's got fibrous tissue in it and what's causing that we don't know i mean there's a there's a number of working hypotheses on that whether it's um stress related um or uh, you know maybe it's related to high blood pressures but the really fascinating and and it's not something we get. We don't get that kind of fiber. We, we, we can we can fibrosis. Do. So if we've had a heart attack, our heart the tissue becomes fibrosis. If you've got some kind of um, uh, there, there's certain inherited diseases that that be, that lead to fibrosis um, or high blood pressure can lead to fibrosis. But the primary cardiac pathology we have is atherosclerosis. Um, not not this. It, the fibrosis is secondary, whereas in the apes, it seems to be a primary uh, disease, which we don't know what's causing it. Uh, is this related at all? There's there's something I know in uh, that some of the sanctuaries. I'm thinking of Champunga in the Republic of Congo. Um, I read something uh, by the vet there. It was something called sudden cardiac death. So that the chimps suffer from. Is is this related no, at all? Absolutely, it it could be. Um, and uh, yes, there's been a number of incidents of of sudden cardiac death in in captive animals. Um, of course, trying to diagnose what caused that sudden death is is problematic, especially in in sanctuaries where we don't often have the techniques to assess the animals uh, as as much as we as we really would like to. Um, you know, if if Let's let's say you felt some palpitations in in your in your chest. You'd go to the doctor. They probably run an ECG. They might do an echocardiogram. If they didn't get if they didn't get an answer before you know it, you might have a twenty four hour ECG. Um, so you walk around and it would be monitoring your heart completely. You then might end up going into an MRI, and all of these techniques would be used to understand what is causing that palpitation. We, we obviously can't do that with, with the chimps, but there's certainly been some cases of um, um, uh, inherited uh, disorders in, in apes that are similar to humans. So uh, we've worked with a collection where um, they think that their population has a disorder called, and this is a mouthful, so I apologize, but arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy or something called ARVC. So ARVC is a well-known um, pathology that causes sudden cardiac death in humans. And this, this small population in a, um, in a zoological collection in the UK, they, they believe that they, uh, their chimps are, they, well, they've shown they, they, they are gene positive for, the AR, for ARVC. So in cer certain cases, that could be the precursor to sudden cardiac death. But the fibrosis could be as well. So we know that in humans, if you have a fibrosed heart, it can cause arrhythmia, which might then precipitate sudden cardiac death. 
so that that's possible um, but um, the really interesting piece on the fibrosis so uh, another study that's come out it from looking at um, pathology records from sanctuaries there doesn't appear to be that much fibrosis in the sanctuary populations the fibrosis seems to be much more prevalent in the zoo populations now that could be a bunch of things you know it could be diet it could be stress it could also be that actually the zoo populations are just much older um you know the oldest zoo the oldest chimps in the world are definitely those that are held in zoos so maybe it's a natural consequence of of aging um but i think there's probably a combination of the above um, so uh, well that kind of brings me i mean we could go on for hours. <laughs> I, I literally uh, could go on for hours. But that brings me to a couple of, of, of final questions. One is, if there was one heart type out there or one heart group that you would absolutely – we kind of touched on it a couple of times. But but if there was one out there that you could study, uh, what is it and why? Okay. What 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 do you what heart out there would shed the most light on what you're curious about? There's a number. There really is, and I, I've been having conversations with zoo teams and vet teams all around the world. So you know, giraffes are fascinating. Um, diving mammals are fascinating. But bizarrely, at the moment, the one group that I really want to look at is really highly experienced and highly trained human sport climbers so humans who are climbing all the time because then what we would have is a model of the human heart that has been selected for physical activity associated with hunter gathering but then has been trained in a way that is much more reminiscent of what the apes are doing so that so like rock yeah, climbers sports and, and sport climbers so there's a so the, the, the guys and girls who are doing lots and lots of very rapid ascents and up and down. And if you think about it, when they're holding on, you know, huge amounts of contraction of forearms and you, you get this massive blood pressure response. So so the heart of those climbers is seeing that blood that high blood pressure. So I'm really interested to see basically how the human heart would remodel to the lifestyle of a chimpanzee. So that 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 would be yeah, that, because that is very much, I mean, in trying to film chimps in the wild, well, orangutans as well, but especially chimps in the wild, you know, they move through, um, as as uh, one researcher told me, they move through a 3D, 3D world, you know, because they're they're not only moving through the three-dimensional world we think of um, on, on the three axes, but they're also interpreting information in a three-dimensional world, whether the branch is slippery, the tensile strength yeah. of it, they're encountering a poisonous snake, or they're trying to get to some fruit. I mean, so they're, they're dealing, yeah, it, uh, that blows me away. That's, that's really, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about climbers, but yeah, you got like the guys who climb yeah. rapid walls yeah. and, and men and women and, who do and that. so yeah. the flip of that, I mean, you're giving me the sort of utopic world that I, I can choose any heart. Now, I know that this isn't possible, but what would be really interesting is a chimpanzee who had trained, obviously we can't do that, but a chimpanzee who's trained to do endurance activity. 
So there you would have a situation where you've got the heart that's adapted for the pressure environment. Can, can that heart remodel to accommodate what's required for endurance type activity? I mean, I really don't think it probably can because I think the structure is such, you know, coming back to that twisting motion, I, I think the structure is such that it, w- it wouldn't adapt. But that would be the kind of ultimate ultimate experiment to, 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 to look at. But of course, we'll, we'll never be able to do that. Well, if we ever are, <laughs> you're coming back on and we're talking about it. That that sounds really, really cool. Rob, uh, this has been so fascinating. You know, as I said, we could talk for hours. I, I just, this whole idea just is so interesting to me. And I'm hoping, um, as we discussed in Zambia, I'm hoping that we can get out and, and actually film you doing some of the stuff in the, in the field um, with the Tarahamara and uh, further afield with other groups and things if we can, because um, it, it's just, it's really fascinating to watch you at work and watch your team at work and the, and the things you've been learning. I mean, getting to see that I know you sent me some film at one point of those folds in the heart and all of that. And it was just, wow. It was well, mind Jerry, it's been a, been a real pleasure to to talk to you and just share some of the work we're doing. I, I mean, it, it's the start of a story. I think, I think we we've got so many more questions that we're going to go after. Um, but I, I also just want to thank all of the people who've been involved with, with the work. It, this is a huge team effort, you know, the likes of Amy and Dan and Aaron, and certainly the, the vets, you know, uh, Talita and, and Yedra, um, all of these people are, are just wonderful people. And they're, they're the ones who've been, been able to facilitate this work. And we, we're just in, incredibly grateful. With every beat of my heart, I want to thank Rob Shave for sharing this incredibly insightful look into how our heart possibly has evolved. For the last 4,000 or so beats of your heart, you've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work in pulling together these podcasts. She does an amazing job. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation to globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks very much for listening to Talking Apes.